Welcome to Don't IEP Alone, the only podcast dedicated to helping parents navigate the IEP process and hosted by a special education advocate. Your host has been attending IEP meetings for over a decade and has helped thousands of parents go from an IEP rookie to an IEP all-star. Be prepared to learn tips that will be a total game changer for you as a parent advocate and most importantly, your child's outcomes. Partnered with the award-winning Block a Day in Our Shoes, you'll be confident, knowledgeable, and actually looking forward to your next IEP meeting. Don't IEP alone. Get ready. Here's your host, from suburban Philadelphia, Lisa Leitner. Hi, and thanks for tuning in and listening. This is Lisa Leitner with Don't IEP Alone and A Day in Our Shoes. Thanks for tuning into this podcast. I'm excited. This, um, this episode, as I say, third time's a charm. Before <laughs> I um, introduce you to my guest, we've had quite a bit of trouble connecting and then we actually did an interview and since I'm an internet idiot it didn't record and so now we're redoing it but that actually worked out well because we both had things that we said we wish we would have said or I wish I would have explained that further so hey we get a redo yeah um, with me today is Genia Steven from thegoodthingsinlife.org. Actually, it's not, there's no the in it. It's just goodthingsinlife.org. And today she and I are going to talk about um, our kids, you know, kids with disabilities and their social roles um, in school, in the classroom, and in society. So, Genia, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you very, very much for having me on the Don't IEP podcast. Don't IEP alone. Don't IEP. Sometimes don't we wish the Don't IEP Alone podcast. I am very grateful to be here again and um, very grateful that you have been so gracious with all of our blips and, uh, you know, just fumbling along as we go here. Um, so uh, as you said, my name is Genius Steven, and I um, am the founder of Good Things in Life and the Good Things in Life podcast. Uh, I have uh, two kids. They are nearly 17 and nearly 14. And um, I sort of first became a member of the disability community when I was about um, five years old, and my younger sister, who was then about three years old or two years old, was diagnosed as having a disability. And so my mom, who had never met anybody with a disability before and really um, didn't know anything and you know was really unsure, got connected with some other parents and um, some really amazing people. And I feel really blessed. In, in a lot of ways, one, because I had a really powerful advocate for a mom. Um, and also because the people that she managed to connect with at that time were some really amazing and positive people, some really significant thought leaders and mentors in the field of disability, all who had a really positive expectation and outlook around what was possible for um, people with disabilities and, and their families. So that was kind of the world that I grew up in. And then when my second son, um, Will, was born, uh, he was born, he was quite sick when he was born, and it was clear that he would have 
um, disabilities and medical complexity. And so I, I started, I started at that moment um, when, when Will was born at a very different place than many parents start. I didn't start at the same place my mom had started um, because I had grown up in this, in this world. And my day job and I joke my night job and my any time uh, job is that I'm a midwife. So for the past um, 11 years or so, I have been supporting families at the very beginning of their journey. And it's been just really, really clear to me over the years that that gap between where I started my parenting journey and where many parents start their parenting journey was really, really wide. And um, that parents were really uh, starting at a disadvantage. Um, and it was also really obvious that there was a big difference between where parents start now and where they started when my mom was looking for connections. You know, when my mom was looking for connections, um, you know, she probably opened the yellow pages. Um, and now the first thing that happens when people get um, a diagnosis or even a hint of a diagnosis is that they go to Google and they Google the diagnosis and then they get two things. They get a list of complications and they get a list of diagnosis or treatment specific Facebook groups, which can be great, but those treatment specific diagnosis and treatment specific Facebook groups also tend to um, because they're based on a diagnosis or a treatment tend to frame future conversation. So um, I just felt more and more called to start Good Things in Life, which is um, online, you know, meeting people where they are, parents where they are early in their journey, which is online, and to offer a community and resources and opportunities to connect around a vision of a rich and positive life for their son or daughter with a disability that's full of all the good things in life. And so here we are. Um, so first of all, I'm, I'm envious that, that you got to start your parenting journey um, kind of on, on the right foot. Um, mm -hmm. I told the story before, but since it didn't record, I'll tell it again. <laughs> um, that when I was pregnant with Kevin, and right around 20 weeks, the OB nurse asked me if I wanted to do an amnio because it was, you know, that window was there. And I declined and said, no, 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 it won't make a difference. You know, we don't, we're happy no matter what. And she said to me, um, it may not change your decision, but it will, it can help you mourn the loss of your normal child and prepare for life with a special needs child. And then that combined with um, having Kevin, and we actually got his diagnosis. He has a genetic condition, and yeah, we got his diagnosis when he was about eight months old. Um, of course, the geneticist uh, called us. We had an appointment set up, but she called us, and she called me at work, and she called my husband at work, and of course, proceeded to tell us all the things that my son would not be able to do, mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, all the worst case scenarios. He'll never live independently blah, blah, blah. So that was not that long ago. We're talking that was only 13, 14 years ago. That was 2007. Mm -hmm. So how do you think, how can we get without the gift of time and having right. 
people grow up in the right environment. Because then also I will say that um, once I, I did take to the internet and found my son's condition, I found the online support group and um, it just wasn't a positive experience. And then I had even spoken with geneticists about it. And she said, well, you have to remember that the people who are in a support group are the people who need a lot of support. So their situations may not be typical of other families, you know, living with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended up, I've, I've spent the past 13 years actually kind of detached from the group because I, I find that there's just a lot of negativity, a lot of woe is me, a lot of grieving. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say, you know, some of our kids do have life-threatening medical conditions mm-hmm. yeah. um, and that's very scary. Yeah. Um, but how do you get how do you, how do we get parents past that? Mm-hmm. You know, cause that's, that's yeah. just sets the tone. And I, I find it so hard to get people out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, well, I think a couple of things, the, the idea of chronic grief was not actually, um, that idea was not something that was discovered based on reality, but actually constructed and then disseminated. And so I think, um, you know, it's, it's important to note that, that the idea of chronic grief is optional and it's only optional though, if it's optional, you can opt in or opt out is kind of the, you know, the important thing about that. But, you know, the parents who, who may be experiencing chronic, chronic grief may never have had the opportunity to have a counter narrative that, allowed them to consider another way. And so, um, you know, when your geneticist was saying, well, the parents who are in the support group are the people who need a lot of support, they may not be representative. I would say, well, maybe, but um, I think we all need connection. Um, And there are some things about having a child with a disability that it is really helpful to connect with other parents around. I mean, you and I both have podcasts for exactly that reason, you know? So I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think it's true that the only people who are in groups are people who need some sort of exceptional amount of support. I think that people who are in groups where there is a negative, um, uh, like, um, overtone, neg- undertone, yeah, negative, overtone. Or, yeah. Like the culture is right. is negative or perpetually grief stricken or really complainy. That's a culture that's fostered, and so I think one of the things that we can do is, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing is to provide a different space with a different culture, so that people. Um, have a place that they can come and they can, they can talk about the challenges because the challenges are real. Um, but they can talk about that, um, not just the challenges and not get caught in, um, the, the culture of negativity and chronic grief and, um, self-pity, um, and to really be thinking about, to, to be coming together around that shared vision of a positive life. And I think that that changes people over time. You know, the, when people, for example, you know, when my son was young and he was really, really sick all of the time, um, that, that called from me certain aspects of my advocacy as a mom that are a little bit different now that he's not, you know, critically ill and 
being medevaced to or pediatric center, you know, like it's just a different time. So, um, but throughout that period of time, I think that the having access to a positive community of um, people who share a vision of a positive life is really important. And I also think that people need access to um, really important concepts and ideas and thought leaders and mentors, because we're not going to frankly, unlearn all of the garbage we've been taught our entire lives about disability and people with disabilities um, overnight. You know, it's not like we get a we get a diagnosis and then all of a sudden our brain just vomits all that toxic waste out. That's not true. We carry it around. Right. And, um, you know, when Kevin was in preschool, I had to get him, um, we did this thing, it's called the catch team. He only had his genetic diagnosis. He didn't have diagnoses of autism and intellectual disability. Um, and we needed those to proceed with mm-hmm. services. So anyway, when we went to see the developmental ped um, and her admin about that, I knew Kevin's skill sets. I mean, I was his mom. I knew what he could do and what he couldn't do. And the two women you know, of course, the doctor sits next to you. She doesn't sit across the table from you. She comes and she sits next to you and she gets you a box of tissues and all that. And she was just tripping over herself. And actually the language, um, the language then they still use the words mentally retarded. It hadn't changed officially in, in all the systems. So that was his diagnosis and she could barely get the words out. And I just was like, yeah, I know. I just needed someone to write it down on paper so I can get him more services. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I, I just, I don't know what you can do with the medical community that they just always present this as such a sad, tragic thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm, I'm, there's a couple of things that come to mind. I'm doing, um, right now I'm working on my master's thesis Um, And my master's thesis is looking at existing qualitative research and seeing um, what kinds of messages parents are getting in the NICU that shape their their mindset about the potential future of their child um, with a disability. So um, I guess that's just to say, yeah, I think this is, you know, what we can do to think about how, how to help parents to see potential is hugely important. And another person that people might be interested in is Rachel Callender. I can, I can send you um, links to her work, Lisa. Um, Rachel's a upcoming guest on my podcast and she, um, her entire work right now, her entire career right now is working with health professionals around, um, issues of disability, supporting um, positivity and positive mindsets with um, supporting that for parents via how healthcare providers interact with parents and family members. And those are just two examples. Um, but essentially, there's a lot of work being done. But I think that the limit, the overarching limiting situation is that we still profoundly devalue people with disabilities in our culture. And so we're not going to, we can, we can have modest changes and improvements. So for example, um, few people have used the word retardation in reference to my son, to me, um, because people have changed their common language use. Um, and that's great. 
but I have endless stories of um, the ways in which my son has been disadvantaged by the fact that he's not seen as highly valuable to our family and to our society. So I think that, you know, we're up against like, like any social justice um, movement, like any discrimination movement, we are up against an awful lot. And, um, and I think that the way that changes is multifaceted for sure. You know, there's no simple solution to that. But I think one of the ways that it changes for our kids individually, like in their, in their, not necessarily as a blanket fixed to the whole society, but what makes a difference for our kids is, um, is having valued, so typical valued social roles and building relationships with typical people in typical places in the typical ways that everybody else does. Yeah. Um, agree. And that's a, a great segue. Um, as it turns out, us delaying this podcast or having to redo the recording of this podcast um, worked out well because it a situation happened last night and this morning that just completely like jarred my memory. Like, oh, I forgot that happens sometimes. And um, I thought I'm going to talk about that with Genia. And it was a high school um, in nearby. I live in suburban Philadelphia. And it was one of the high schools around here. And they did the thing where um, kid with Down syndrome was the team manager, whatever, last game of the season. They let him make a shot. They bring in all the news media and all that. And um, I posted it on Facebook this morning with the, you know, a few choice comments. And a lot of other parents who also have children or relatives with intellectual disabilities were like, yep, you're spot on. Um, But I think it just takes that that piece of education of the message that was sent is that you were providing value to the team by being a team manager, but we didn't value that until you got on the court. And we only put you on the court when the outcome of the game didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and it, you know, people with down syndrome should not be expected to, shoot basketball and should not be expected to make baskets. And if they do so, it's such an extraordinary event that we need to call in the news media. Right. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I was just excited to have the opportunity to discuss social roles today because, yeah. you know, it was all over the TV news last night. It was all over the TV news, you know, as one of those feel good stories. Yeah. And it's, and meanwhile, it's just reinforcing these stereotypes. Yeah, totally. And I mean, that falls firmly into the category of inspiration porn. Um, And I'm trying to, I I can't think of the name of the woman who coined the term inspiration porn. I can picture her face and I, that's terrible that I can't remember her name right now. We should definitely make sure that ends up in your show notes. Yeah. Um, And uh, I can send you some of the really, um, I I have her bookmarked some of the, her most concise writing on the topic um, of inspiration. Stella Young. Yes, thank I you. Just, I just quick looked it up. Yes, thank you. So um, Stella Young talks about inspiration, inspiration porn, and you know she talks about it much better than I can. So people should really find that link in your show notes and and check out her. She's done TED talks, and um, she passed away not too long ago, unfortunately. But there's still some great um, stuff of hers online. Um, she, one of the defining aspects of inspiration porn is that it is media created for the pleasure of others 
not for the benefit of the person being featured. And examples like what you are talking about are um, perfect examples of that. Other examples are, you know, the prom king who, or the like star of the football team who takes the child with, or the girl with Down syndrome to, or whatever disability to the prom. They have no relationship. You know, they, they, the, they may have fun and that is lovely. Um, but essentially it's a one-off, um, one-off experience that, uh, where the benefits of the experience primarily accrue to others and not to the object of the of the media focus or the subject of the media. So you know, using that example of the um, team manager, um, I, I I'm I don't know anything about team sports really at the at the high school or college level. So um, people who do please forgive me for, for my potential ignorance and mistakes on this, but I'm going to go out and guess that um, like a team manager and the, and what a manager does on that team, that's a thing that happens on teams. Like that's a, that's a role and that there are things that have to happen um, to help the team be successful. And that's why the position of team manager exists. And, you know, the, um, it might be a good time to introduce a, a definition, you know, a social role um, as defined by Talcott Parsons is um, a social role may be defined as a socially expected pattern of behaviors, responsibilities, expectations, and privileges. So, um, you know, when somebody has the social role of team manager, then that means that their people understand what that means at least on that team or within that sport and you know there's an expectation that 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 manager is going to carry out certain responsibilities and have um activities that are relevant and that in that that's going to happen over time you know it's not a one-off experience but our social roles tend to be things that we fill over time and that we build relationships with the other people that relate to that social role. And so in that team manager position, um, you know, the student would have gotten to know the other team members and would have gotten to know the coaching staff and probably some of the um, staff who managed the gym, you know, whoever that happens to be within that educational institution. They may have had more than one opportunity to travel to other cities and play other teams and meet other people in that capacity. They would have had tremendous opportunities for um, enhancing their skills and it would likely be a a really reputable addition to their resume. Um, And all of the perks of being a member of that team, you know, all of the social activities and, um, you know, the status that comes with wearing a jersey and, you know, the um, feeling you get when you are a member of a team and um, you, you form that team identity, all of those come from, uh, the, come from the role of, you know, team mem- member in whatever capacity, you know you're a member on that team. And that I, the idea of, if you compare that to the shooting the basket, 
it becomes very clear that this the the role was not basketball player like their role on the team was not basketball player they didn't play regularly they weren't on the regular roster they didn't you know probably attend the person probably didn't attend all of the same um, trainings and have all of the same expectations around what team members would do to train for this probably only got to shoot that one basket and all of the sort of excitement and joy of that um, was not connected in any way to any sort of longer experience. It was simply kind of a tokenism and inspiration porn moment in that student's life, which may be fun, but isn't likely to lead to the good things in life in general. Right. It's like a cameo. It's like you're showing up in real life as a cameo, um, not as a, as a, you know, permanent player in the, in the game. Right. I think, um, you know, then I had a, a college friend commented that her daughter plays high school basketball and she said, and we have a girl with down syndrome on the team. And she said, and she practices with the team, blah, blah, blah. Um, the girls engage with her. And then she said, but she's the sixth person on the court. So again, I said, oh, and then she said, um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to call her out. I'm, I'm, she's a lovely mom and person. We've known each other for 30 years. Um, and I think she genuinely, and she's a teacher and she genuinely, I think wants to learn and understand this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Cause she even said, yeah. what, what could we do to make this better? Um, but she said to me, I don't think anyone on the team thinks it's patronizing. And I said, well, I think that's part of the problem. The simple fact that she's the sixth person on the floor rather than the fifth, you know, because there's only five. Oh, there are only five people. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> You're only allowed to have five on the floor. <laughs> there's so basically it's showing. like, oh, well, we'll let you, we'll okay. let you out there. Right. Um, and then it, right. Oh, that's terrible. Okay. Now that I get the <laughs> significance of the sixth person on the floor. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of like, yeah, you could, it's, I don't know. It's almost like a, like a kid whose mom forces him to take his, drag his little brother along, you know, like he wants to go out and play with his yeah. friends and his mom says, yeah, you can go, but you have to take your little brother with you yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then I think it also goes back to, you know, after the game, if all the girls go out, does she get invited? Yeah. You know, does she get invited to sleepovers with them? Yeah. Um, and, and things like that. So it's, it's, um, it's, I think it's hard because I know then another friend said, well, you know, I'm a high school coach. And she said, and parents suck because all they want to do is win. Mm-hmm. She said, and mm-hmm. I, I really struggle with the balance of parents who just want to win all the time and trying to teach these girls the bigger life lessons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's really valid. And, you know, the, um, so I, I have a couple of thoughts. If the, if the student with Down syndrome who is a player on the team, but she's the sixth player on the team, and this is all like situation specific, right? So nothing that we're saying is meant to be like a cookie cutter approach to any situation. But if that student was the fifth player, but required potentially somebody else on the court in order to assist her, that may just be an adaptation or an accommodation in the game, but she's authentically filling the role, which gets into the complexity sometimes of thinking this way, right? Is that, um, I'm all for people authentically filling um, a role on a team, but we have to, as you, as, as you're 
saying, Lisa, we have to look at, you know, is this sort of tokenism or is this um, support and accommodation? And some of the ways that we can tell are by looking at other aspects of what you would expect it to look like if somebody were on that team. And that's a really helpful way of looking at it. And I was in preparation for today, I was I was made a bunch of notes about that. How, how do we tell? Like, what are some of the checklist kinds of ways that we could tell? And um, the, what, what was it? I had another thought and I've just lost track of my um, thinking here, but, um, oh, the other parents. So when my son, so my son uses a wheelchair, um, exclusively uses a wheelchair. And um, a few years ago, four years ago now, um, he decided that he would be interested in playing soccer. And so we approached the uh, local soccer league and there are lots of really wonderful and fun conversation stories I could tell about that process. Um, But what that looked like is that he attended, he played soccer and he had somebody push his wheelchair for him because he couldn't, he doesn't self propel. Um, And one of the concerns that the soccer league had was that parents would complain um, and that they would complain about two things, safety and winning. And so what the soccer league did was they pulled in a bunch of um, coaches that they thought would be sympathetic and allies. And then they made sure that every team in the league had at least one of those people. And then for the first handful of games, I'm not sure how many, they also made sure that the head coach, or excuse me, the head referee was the referee that was refing my son's game. So that every, in, in this onboarding kind of period of time, um, that they had planted quite intentional. I thought this was brilliant because this was not my idea. They came up with this themselves. Um, but they had planted advocates around in order to um, protect all the kids from parental negativity, um, but also just to facilitate, to answer questions, to make sure there was somebody other than, um, you know, me uh, there for, for people to ask questions to. So if it was super awkward, you know what I mean? If somebody was going to complain, they could complain to somebody that wasn't the parent. Um, and what we found, uh, was that it, it worked really well. You know, we also, they also placed my son on, um, one of the teams where the coach was really super popular in the soccer league. Um, and I think that, that attention to, um, that attention was creative. It was not onerous insofar as like all those people were already volunteering to be coaches. All those people were already refing. Like there wasn't any increase in resources or, or significant demands. Um, but there was just sort of a recognition that we can sometimes just infiltrate um, people who are on board with our vision um, in ways um, that are really effective and can help facilitate people bringing more and more people on board. Yeah. I think also um, while people can be nasty and um, need some education to put it politely, I think that sometimes we also have to give them the opportunity to rise to the occasion. Um, Yeah. My son, um, when his health is better, he used to do this. We have a, 
I don't, I don't, I think it's a national program. It might only be in Pennsylvania. It's called Healthy Kids Running. And it's to encourage younger kids to run races. And the races get incrementally longer with the age group. And my son, he runs with a lower age group because he needs the shorter distance. He also is, you know, he's, he's slow, but he finishes the races. And I remember one time, um, it would just make me anxious and uncomfortable because um, I didn't care that he always came in last and it didn't bother him that he always came in last. But I felt, I could sometimes feel like parents wanting to get on with the next race, but they had to wait until the, the mm-hmm. previous race finishes. And, you know, they're essentially mm-hmm. everybody's waiting for my son to finish right. before they can move on. And anybody who's ever been the last person in the race <laughs> knows how that feels. Right. So anyway, so one time I'm waiting and I'm just getting a little anxious and this mom next to me started talking and I overheard her and she just said something about, um, I hope my son doesn't come in last place. And I said, oh, he's, he won't, <laughs> you know, because we had been doing this long enough that I knew that my son yeah. came in last every time. And she said, well, you know, he has autism and I'm really, he's slow and I'm really worried that he's going to come in last place. And I said, um, he, you know, he, I don't think he will um, because my son typically comes in last place and it doesn't bother him. But then it just went on to be like, a good thing that my son was last because my son being last and it not bothering him at all mm-hmm. meant that it made some other kid's day because mm-hmm. he just didn't want to be last. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I, but yeah. I think, like I said, and you know, um, and there have been times when he's come across the finish line and I've heard parents say, I just love to watch this kid. I love to watch this kid finish. And I don't think it was in an inspiration porn kind of way. It was just like, hey, here's a kid who's, you know, achieving his goals. Um, There's no nothing wrong with inspiration. Right, right. There's nothing wrong with inspiration. And <laughs> I think right, we, get, yeah. we get trapped in that. Like, mm-hmm. um, So anyway. So, all right. So let's switch gears and talk about social roles in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Great. Because um, that's what we had. That was the original. Yeah, that was the original role. thing. So, um. Yes. So I would just like to plug, we've got an upcoming event with Darcy Elks. Um, so Darcy is an educator and a mentor of mine. She's been teaching um, social role valorization and related materials for, you know, 30 plus years. And so um, she, she is the, you know, one of, um, one of, a handful of people who you really want to learn from if you're interested in social roles. And so she's doing a free live online masterclass uh, on February 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern time, uh, daylight savings time on the power of roles. And, you know, we don't have a subtitle, but if we did, it would be the power of roles in helping people to access the good things in life. Um, And you can find Find that and register for that free event at goodthingsinlife.org forward slash roles, R-O-L-E-S. So I'd encourage you to attend. Yes. And locals, um, she speaks around here often. She's from the Philadelphia area. So um, I've heard her speak a number of times. And honestly, if you have this opportunity to not to hear her and not even leave your house, take it. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely... Um, it's definitely a great opportunity. I'm really grateful to Darcy for being willing to work with me on this. So I just want to fix in people's minds. So a social role, um, Talcott Parsons says that a social role may be defined as a socially expected pattern of behaviors, responsibilities, expectations, and privileges. And, um, 
we want to avoid extreme thinking in this. So in any role that you can think of, there are all kinds of variations. And so this is not about trying to pigeonhole or shove a square peg into a round hole. That's not at all what we mean. But it is about using um, what we can know, what we can learn from social science theory around social roles to help our kids to fit, to, to become roles um, that they're interested in, like friend, for example. What does it mean to be a friend? What does it mean to be a student? Um, because they may need some support in these areas. And, you know, social roles are incredibly important. They're the primary mechanism by which we relate to each other and how we function in society. You know, they tell us how we should behave in different situations or, uh, and we, they tell us how others should interact with us. And they set expectations to us about ourselves and they set expectations um, for others about us. And so, you know, when we think about, um, when we think about the role of student, for example, um, whatever educational environment your child is in, use that as an example, because of course a public school student um, role might look very different from a Montessori student role, from a homeschool role. You know, the role of student in kindergarten is very different from in grade eight from a college student. So it's, it's really look to your, the example that's relevant to you. Um, and, because I can't do this justice and I'm hoping people will attend Darcy's presentation and get a good sense of this. I just want us to imagine sort of visually right now um, using a grade six public school example um, and thinking about, you know, what does a grade six student kind of look like, you know, and when a grade six student in public school probably has a backpack, um, maybe that's branded with some sort of preferred style, like something that they're into. You know, they are likely wearing sneakers. They're just beginning to care about hairstyles. Um, they're generally not too well-groomed in grade six, but they're getting there, you know? Um, and when you think about what you see very, very often when you see kids with disabilities that um, are in our public school system, it they often don't look anything like the rest of the students. And partially this might be because other students are taking, in grade six, are taking more and more control over their own, you know, how they dress and that kind of thing. And um, kids with disabilities may still be um, having a lot more influence from their parents who may not know what it means to look cool in grade six anymore. Um, but, you know, you'll often see things like kids um, that use a wheelchair, for example, will have the backpack that came with the, with the chair definitely not cool for a grade six student. Um, they might be wearing Velcro sneakers and Velcro sneakers that again look like a much younger child. Um, they may have really messy hair and I'm always appalled when I see kids with disabilities with like snot on their faces or drooling and nobody, bibs, nobody has attended to, you know, what they are looking like. And this is not, I'm, I'm bringing this up and I'm sure somebody listening is saying, well, we shouldn't care what people look like. And it matters. I, Whether we I like agree. it or not, it matters. Exactly. <laughs> and 
while I agree that we, sh we, um, we shouldn't care, like I'm, I want to fight that at the societal level by changing expectations for conformity, not on the back of a kid with disabilities who actually would prefer very much to fit in with their classmates. Right. You know, I just had this conversation last night with a parent at my typical child's uh, basketball practice. And I said that I'm, I said, I know it might sound shallow and superficial, but I'm really particular about buying Kevin name brand clothing. You know, he wears a lot of Under Armour, a lot of Ralph Lauren, mm -hmm. because I want him, because I, it just grinds my gears when I see a teen or an older person with, um, disability and granted I get it like there's sometimes there's sensory issues or um, ADL issues that they need elastic waistband pants and, and things like that but you know what in 2020 there are so many more options to get decent looking clothing that have an elastic waistband yeah. and I just think if that person could dress themselves and choose their own clothing would they have chosen the all heather gray sweatsuit with the big white velcro shoes you know right. Um, with the right. food stains on the front and everything else. Right. Um, right. And the reason that the, like, as this circles back to rules is that this is just one, what somebody looks like is just one aspect of, of how we know that people are or aren't that role. Um, you know, the, if somebody came into, um, if somebody came into the classroom um, and they were, twice the age of the other students and they were dressed in I don't I don't know they were dressed in a uniform from a local pizza shop and they were um and they smelled like smoke and they you know I don't know like you can kind of create this image um it's possible that they're a grade six student but nobody's gonna think so Right. Nobody is going to think so. And so how like looks is just one little thing. It's only one thing. It's not the most, it's not the, um, you can't just do this by looks, but it's just this one idea that I, I thought would be really helpful for people to think about is like, what does a grade six student look like? It doesn't look like just one thing. It's not like there's only one version of a grade six student in your local class. Um, however, there are lots of things that a grade six student does not look like. And if, um, if the, um, if the kids you're thinking about might agree with the statement, I am a student or I am a member of this class, then other people need to be able to recognize them by what they look like and what they do and what the expectations are as a member of that grade six class. And there are some things that we can do as parents that are actually very external to what, um, what efforts we might be having to invest in or what fights or advocacy or what, regardless of what's going on at the school level, there are some things that we can be doing that can help um, our kid to belong in the class um, just by helping, just by thinking about what it means to be a student in that you know, in that class, um, you know, and whether this is relevant or not, you know, you can, you can kind of decide that by thinking about things like, does my child with a disability look like a student in the class? Do they act like a student in the class? And this is, I'm not getting niche down onto like behaviors or um, like movements or that kind of thing, but I mean like 
um, what's expected of them during the day? Like, do they act like a student or do they act like actually they're in childcare, but they're not actually a learner? You know, do they have the same routines as a student in that class or are they showing up after the bell is rung and everybody is seated and they're leaving early um, before everybody else and they have different break times, for example. Um, again, this does not mean that nobody can ever leave the class at a different time for a different reason. It's not meant to be this is not extreme thinking, but is my child recognizable as a member of this class by things like, do they look like a student? Do they act like a student? Do they have the same routines? Um, do they experience the same expectations as other students? Do they experience the same opportunities for personal development as other students? Do they spend time in the same places at the same times as other students? These are all, I think, really helpful classes, questions Excuse me, to help us to evaluate is our child really filling the role of student? Are they truly a member of that class? And if not, then we can start to think about what we can do about it. Right. So where do you think we can mesh the, um, the needs that our kids have? Um, and it might be behavioral needs. It might be um, sensory needs, whatever it is. Um, how can we begin to mesh that? Because some of the kids do look and act different and it's you know and it's not always as simple as buying a ralph lauren sweatshirt you know no, for so, sure. and, and, yeah and so um it might have to do with you know behaviors you know and i know you said you don't want to get leashed down to that but what can we do to kind of because i feel like i lecture my kid every day my my typical child um and I can already tell in his grade and in his class, you know, who has an IEP, even if I've never met them, because he tells me, you know, things that happen. And I think, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like I'm lecturing him every day and say, well, some, some people are just different and that's okay. But where do you think, how do you think we can better mesh that so mm -hmm. that they aren't seen as different? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think one thing is to accept that we're, um, we're not trying to, we, we, we may never, and nor do I think it's necessarily the goal that people not perceive the differences across a classroom, the differences in individuals across a classroom. Um, my point, I think, and I, I'll attend more specifically to your question, my, um, my point really is that if they truly fill the role of student and are a member of that class, then they will be accepted for um, like the differences will be accepted far more readily than if they're just some kid who's kind of sort of there sometimes, or, you know, whether they're, if they're not truly a member of the class, if they're not truly filling the role of student, um, then the potential for interpersonal identification and building of relationships um, and connection are going to be a lot less. And, then they will just belong less. So <clears throat> there is that, the, the point in some ways is to attend to what you can attend to because it makes everything else easier. But specifically, I think there are a couple of things that we can help with. You know, a lot of kids, um, a lot of kids sort of just intuitively um, pick up on role expectations and a lot of kids don't. And one of the things that's really interesting is that we rarely, like if, a, if we have a kid, my sister is actually a grade six teacher, which is probably why I chose grade six for this example. But there are a lot of kids in her class who she has to tell 
they don't have disabilities. They don't like it's, this isn't an issue there, but um, she has to tell them what is expected. This is what it means to be a student in my class. This is how you scrub your underarms is one thing that she often has to talk to kids about, right? So it's not just kids um, with disabilities that don't understand some of what's expected of them or some of what it means to be um, a member of the classroom or to be a student. They get told. But often we don't even tell our kids with disabilities what it means to be a student if they're not picking up on it intuitively. You know, we just sort of like, we don't educate them on that. And so I think one of the things that we can do is regardless of how significantly disabled you think your kid is, tell them what's expected in the different roles that they're in. Teach them. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, around behaviors, there are some things that I'm, I'm sure for some kids, um, well, I know for some kids are immutable. Like they're, we're not going to affect them in any positive way right now. And that's fine. I'm not suggesting that we try and do that. But for some of the stuff that our kids do that's a little off-putting, they might do it less or not as often or, or work with us around finding a space and a time where they can do that at school um, that's less off-putting to the other kids if they understood that it was off-putting to other kids and why and what the consequences were of doing that. So, um, you know, when you make that face, I'm making something up here, but when you make that face, you look a little bit silly and you kind of look a little bit like a baby when you do that. And kids in your class don't want to look like babies. They, they, kids in your class really want, and, and you really want to be a, a, you know, treated like a big boy. So at the very least, letting people know that there are consequences and what they are can be really helpful if they don't get that. And again, some, some things are not going to be optional for kids, right? Like some behaviors are not going to be optional. Some other issues are not going to, they're not going to be able to affect that. I mean, they're little kids. I need to cut them some slack. <laughs> but I think the, the, some of the stuff, I, I think it's shocking how, how, how often kids with disabilities just aren't well-informed. That's um, a very good point. In ways it, that kids that don't have disabilities, they get told. Yeah. If you do that, People will make fun of you. Yeah, and I don't, um, I don't know if you're a Big Bang Theory fan, but <laughs> no, I'm familiar no. with the show. But I'm not. The show. there, there is just one episode, and it just like, it, it just breaks your heart. Even though you know that this is an adult, and he's an actor, and and he just, but he just kind of has this mini meltdown, and he says, "I know, I'm irritating. My whole life, I've been told that what I do irritates people, and I think." Um, because it just, I think it hits home with so many parents who live that every day, who's, they're watching their kids do this and their kids may not have that self-awareness that, mm -hmm. that they're bothering other kids. Yeah. Um, and they may help, they may need help with that. They, like parents need to use some judgment here around, like none of this is meant to be throwing any baby out with any bathwater, right? Like they're, we're not trying to set ki kids up to think that everything about them is wrong and bad. All I'm talking about is the fact that kids with disabilities often are poorly informed in ways that kids without disabilities are not. And that's 
that's unfortunate. Like they can't learn, they can't be expected to understand the impact of some of their actions if nobody ever tells them. That doesn't mean that we we make them self-loathe, self-loathe because we are telling them that their um, behaviors are irritating to everybody around them. That's not, that's not at all what I mean. And I hope that the listeners can apply that, you know, good, loving judgment on that. The other thing that I think that we can do that is absolutely within the control of parents um, is to, um, again, not leave kids without the support to think about um, to like, you're not necessarily, it's not, so kids, the kid with, that uses a wheelchair that goes to school and he doesn't have a fun backpack that, ex, that, you know, reflects his personality. He just has the backpack that fits the wheelchair and nobody's ever helped him to think about that. It's not that a parent who thinks that they're cool so they can choose a cool backpack is necessarily going to um, make the right choice or that that should be imposed on the child. That's not what I mean, but we can support our kids to make some choices that, um, that help them to fit in and belong. And we can help the school to whatever influence we have, which will be for some of us, almost none, right? Let's face it. Sometimes we're up against a lot and with other schools, quite a lot to also have, um, their support in the, in the school to be thinking about things like, does my kid have the same opportunities? Does my kid have the same extracurricular um, you know, experiences? Does my kid have the same routines? Are there ways that we can attend to this so that um, when you think about what does it mean to be a member of this class, that, that those checkboxes are, are checked. Um, this isn't about denying accommodation. It's about not ignoring the aspects of what it means to be a member of that class uh, not ignoring the impact of attending to what it means to be a member of that class. And you may right. have to make adaptations and modifications for sure. But some of this stuff is actually really not that complicated. Right. It's really not. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to swing back around and touch on that self-loathing piece because anyone who's, I have several blog posts on it and I think a couple of podcasts on um anyone who knows me knows that I am all about accepting our kids for who they are. Um, Absolutely. And I'm like a huge advocate and proponent of, um, you know, there's nothing inappropriate about liking things and or age inappropriate about liking things. Um, But I do think that we owe it to our kids to explain to them, Hey, um, you know, not a lot of teenagers like Thomas the tank train. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are a lot of adults who go to Disney world and there are a lot of adults who are really into comic books and, you know, other kids at school may not understand that. Like we have to explain that there's nothing wrong with it, but that other kids may not, may not at understand least let them that. know. Right. Yeah. Right. That's all I, that's all I mean. I, the other thing that, that really, um, like when we're talking about the image issue and we're talking about age appropriate interests, I 100% agree with you that we are like, it is bad news all over the place to be um, shaming people for what they're interested in or things that they can't or choose not to change about themselves. Well, and especially since it's, there's an, there's a a hypocrisy to it in that like Disney world has a whole empire built on having your wedding at Disney. Well, most people who are just getting married don't have kids yet. So they're not taking kids to Disney. You know what I mean? So it's about the adult experience at Disney. There's a whole, um, 
you know, Comic-Con and that whole thing. Um, I mean, there's just, I just, that's what gets me up. Oh, Civil War reenactors is another one. Yeah. Like, well, okay, you're you're Canadian, (laughs) but I don't know if you knew down here, we have a whole thing. It's a hobby. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. a hobby for a lot of people to dress up like and reenact the Civil War. Like no one thinks to like doing dress up like a soldier and playing army. No one thinks that's inappropriate. But I think it's, it's weird. But I, but I know. <laughs> right. But they don't say that they don't. I'm just, not, I'm just No, kidding. no. They're not treated with the same disdain that our that's kids right. are. That's right. So here's the thing, though, that I think is a baby in the bathwater issue, is that if you have a young child who's into Disney and they, um, and they don't have a disability, as they get older, they will have a broad rich, um, varied opportunity to experience all kinds of other Disney-related things that are um, not the same Disney stuff that they were focused on when they were six years old, right? Kids with disabilities, when when we're talking about age-appropriate stuff, nine times out of 10, when you actually explore the 30-year-old who still has a bananas in pajamas comforter on their bed, they never ever got to explore all the different um, all the different ways in which people who are older and are interested in animation, all those different things that they get. They're just stuck in paj- bananas with pajamas because they haven't had an opportunity to figure out where that interest in animation can go from five years old to thirty years old or whatever the the thing is. So I, you know, like if you have had the, the same opportunities to explore your interests as I have had, and you still want to play with whatever, like your interests are still where they, where they were when you were five years old, then have at her. But if you haven't had the same kind of experiences, if you've been deprived of the opportunity for that interest to grow in typical ways, because you haven't had the opportunity, then you are not, then just letting people sort of like stay in Disney and bananas and pajamas comforters, that's just abandonment. Yeah. That's just abandonment. So I think, you know, there's, we get, we've gotten a little bit fanatical. Like people, there's fanatical, like you can't have an interest that, that is in any way associated with anything childish. And then at the other end of the fanaticism is, well, people, people can be interested in whatever they want. I'm mostly concerned in that conversation with two questions. Has the person had truly rich opportunities to expand those interests in age-appropriate ways over time like somebody would have if they didn't have a disability? And if not, why not? And what are we going to do about it as we're supporting them? And the other question is, what's the cost? So if... Um, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of maybe an, ex- an extreme example. If my, um, if I decide that I want a bananas in pajamas themed bedroom in my forties, there is zero consequence to that. There's none. Like my professional life is not <laughs> impeded. My social life is not impeded unless I'm bringing you know, new people into my bedroom all the time, which is unlikely. Um, If my son, however, when he is my age, my son with a disability, when he is my age, if he has a bananas and pajamas themed bedroom at that stage in his life, he is going to have people in his room. 
because it requires support in personal ways. Um, it absolutely, how the people that are in his life see him express, like see him. And if they see him as a perpetual child, they will treat him as a perpetual child. And then that will limit his opportunities. And the, you know, what happens in the privacy of your bedroom is a terrible example because it's, <laughs> it's the most private personal right. kind of space. But some people like a better, a better example might be, you know, if I go to a job interview and I look cute and quirky and I'm wearing a childish t-shirt as part of my cute and quirky getup and somebody else, um, and a woman my age with Down syndrome goes to the same job interview, even if we can both do the job, she is less likely to get hired than I am because, um, in part she, she presents herself as childish. And so we need to, we need to at least acknowledge that some of this, I didn't, I don't know how we got talking about inappropriate stuff specifically, <laughs> but I think well, it, is, of, it is connected to social roles. It really is. It is. And it's connected to this idea or this worry we have around acceptance of who people are and sort of whether or not they fit typical expectations of what it means to be in a particular role. But so the two things, right? Like we want to make sure that we are not, um, we are not overly controlling people, um, but we also have to make sure that we're not abandoning them with deprivation of experience so they can't grow in their interests. And we need to recognize that sometimes it's downright dangerous for people with disabilities to, um, to express themselves um, the way that it's okay for those of us who don't have um, visible disabilities to express themselves. And at the very least, we need to support those, the person with a disability that might be expressing themselves in a way that could have negative consequences for them. We, at the very least, we need to support them to understand the risks that they're taking so that they can make an informed choice about that. Right. Because otherwise we're still abandoning them. It's still poor support. Yeah. No, I've been ranting, Lisa. I wasn't <laughs> planning on ranting on your podcast. That's Sorry. Fine. That's fine. No, it's um no, it's it's it is connect it's it's connected and I didn't mean to get um too off topic. Um okay. I um any final thoughts on social roles and you want to remind us again about your event with Darcy Elks? Yeah, well I was just gonna say um Darcy won't rant. Um and I know that she will make a lot of sense and help introduce the idea of valued social roles as a pathway towards the good things in life um, much more succinctly than I have. And people can register for that event, um, that free online event, um, by going to goodthingsinlife.org slash roles, R-O-L-E-S. And um, there will be a um, limited time um, access to a replay as well. So if that time doesn't work for people February 18th at 7 p.m., um, there will be a few days after that that you can catch the replay. Okay. Will it be just like a uh, presentation kind of lecture format or will it be Q&A and audience participation? So um, it is. It, it will be run much like a workshop. So Darcy will be presenting information and then having people um, work through some questions to make this relevant to them. And then there will be a short Q&A um, at the end of the um, presentation slash workshop. Okay. Um, great. I can't thank you enough for coming on. I know um, it's been therapeutic for me, and I hope it's as therapeutic for my listeners as it is for me, because I know that, especially since I do what I do with IEPs, mm -hmm. parents get so caught up in 
what their child is or isn't receiving, you know, Mm -hmm. that they need for school, Mm -hmm. that they just get so caught up and focused on that, that they kind of neglect this other bigger picture kind of stuff. Um, that is, you know, almost, I would say, I don't want to say more important, but you know, I think a social role is almost more important than what you learn in school academically, Mm -hmm. you know, and how, I would agree, you know, how society views you, how society treats you. Um, because we just know right now that even in 2020, um, you know, my son is facing the same future, the same outcomes as his intellectually disabled peers from 1975 when IDEA was passed. Mm-hmm. We haven't changed outcomes for kids like him at all. You know, they still have an 80% unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. So I think that, yeah, we need to look at this bigger picture kind of stuff and where, you know, not just getting our kids the academic and supports that they need and therapeutic supports that they need in school, but what, what is the bigger picture? What's their role and how are others viewing them? Cause that's, what's going to matter. It is what's going to matter. And I think that it's not that I don't think that competency development is and learning is hugely important. I do, but I think that, you know, if you, if you, even if none of that happens, um, being a member of a class and being treated by others and experiencing and and um, thinking of yourself as a student and as a learner, um, the positive repercussions of that are overarching regardless of what your situation is, what you do or don't learn, you know, any of those kinds of things. And the, the idea of valued social rules persists outside of school as well. And so it's a really helpful idea to be familiar with because, you know, sometimes school's a bust and you have to think about what's happening on evenings and weekends um, as a way of, of building, um, you know, supporting your child to have a positive life full of good things in life. Right. And you, and you can't rely on the school for everything. I mean, yes, they have a, a certain degree of accountability and responsibility, but parents are, you're going to have to be the ones that step in and say, I'm taking control of this and I'm going to make it happen. Um, right. Because no one else will. Right. Just so, look around. Yeah, exactly. Just look around. Yeah. No one else will. So, all right. Well, thank you again, Genia. Um, Again, if you want to find her, she is at goodthingsinlife.org. And I will have links to her website and to the event that she talked about and all that good stuff um, on this podcast. And um, if you go to adayinourshoes.com backslash podcast, um, it will be on there as well. Great. Lisa, this has been a lot of fun and I feel like I've gotten to know you quite a bit over our various, <laughs> our various attempts at this. We need one of those movie clappers, you know, take, take three, but this has been really great. And I'm again, very, very grateful. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Don't IEP Alone podcast. No parent should have to IEP alone. And with a day in our shoes, you don't have to. For more IEP assistance and letter templates, visit adayinourshoes.com. For ongoing assistance and support, follow our Facebook page and group.
Wait. 